Hello and welcome to this fourth episode of Pain TV. My name is Perry Fine, Professor of Anesthesiology and Attending Physician at the Pain Management Center at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, and your host to this series of programs focused on managing chronic pain in primary care. The management of chronic neuropathic pain is clinically challenging and sometimes frustrating. Treatment success depends on an understanding of the complex interrelationships between the pathophysiology and mechanisms of neuropathic pain. Here to discuss these issues within the context of two common types of chronic neuropathic pain, diabetic peripheral neuropathy and posterpedic neuralgia, is my colleague James Rathmel. Dr. Rathmel is the director of the Center for Pain Medicine in the Department of Anesthesia, Critical Care, and Pain Medicine at Massachusetts General Hospital. He's also a professor of anesthesia at Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts. Neuropathic pain is one of the most common forms of chronic maladaptive pain. Neuropathic pain results from damage to the peripheral nervous system in some conditions. Diabetic peripheral neuropathy, posterpedic neuralgia, and chronic lumbar radiculopathy are all examples where injury to the peripheral nerves can result in pain. Neuropathic pain can result from injury to the central nervous system, as occurs in spinal cord injury, multiple sclerosis, and stroke. Let's start with a brief review of the normal anatomy and physiology of pain to get a better sense of how we develop neuropathic pain and why specific symptoms occur in our patients with neuropathic pain. This is a diagram of the normal nociceptive system, the system that allows us to perceive pain and avoid further injury. In the lower right-hand corner is the noxious stimulus that can take the form of heat, cold, changes in pH, or mechanical distortion. That's transduced into incoming signals that travel toward the central nervous system, the spinal cord. They travel along small, unmyelinated fibers, the C nociceptive fibers, and then synapse in the dorsal horn of the spinal cord. The second order of neuron then crosses the midline and travels up the contralateral spinal thalamic tract to the thalamus and the brain where we perceive pain. The intensity of the incoming signals can be modulated by descending inhibitory traffic. That's the modulation box you see there. That's how opioids work. They bind in the brain and it cause an increase in descending inhibition that dampen the incoming pain signals. That allows us to have lower levels of pain when we take opioids. That's how they work. So pain is a normal part of the protective mechanism that allows us to survive. Let's take a look at pain intensity and how we perceive pain normally. This is a diagram that shows stimulus intensity and then the pain you would uh, a normal subject would report. As the stimulus intensity gets greater and greater, goes from a light touch to pinch and uh, further, we start to perceive pain at some point. And we can rate that on a scale of 0 to 10. How intense is the pain? With the greater stimulus intensity, more and more pain. That's what occurs normally. Now after injury, this entire curve shifts to the left. We become hypersensitive. Now think about it, that's really the normal pain perception. Uh, that's exactly what we know empirically. You put your hand on the stove, pull it away, and when you touch your hand, what a moment ago felt like light touch is now painful. That's how we protect ourselves. Keeps us from injuring the area that's been injured over and over again and preventing healing. Now, the left-hand curve shows exactly how you react. You've just been injured and now you touch the area. A moment ago you said that didn't hurt at all. I, I would rate that zero out of 10, it feels like light touch. And now it causes mild pain. That's called allodynia, pain to a non-painful stimulus. And then to the right where the dotted line is, you had perhaps a light pinch that you rated 
as mildly painful, one on a scale of zero to 10, now causes severe pain. That's called hyperalgesia. And that's a normal part of protecting yourself until you'll heal. If all the tissue injury heals, and the allodynia and hyperalgesia, those sensitizations persist, that's what we call neuropathic pain. And that's what we're gonna talk more about today. Neuropathic pain can be recognized by the associated symptoms. These symptoms can be negative, partial or complete loss of sensation, or they can be positive, burning or stabbing dysesthesias that can be evoked by light touch or movement, or may even occur spontaneously. And persistence of the allodynia and hyperalgesia that I just described, even after all tissue injury is healed, are the hallmarks of neuropathic pain. One good example we'll talk more about today are patients with post-herpetic neuralgia that often suffer with severe allodynia, so severe they can't even have clothing over the affected area. Whether symptoms originate in, in the peripheral or central nervous system, neuropathic pain is a chronic disease. Once it's switched on, it's difficult to switch off. The clinical classification of neuropathic pain is most often based on the cause or the location of injury and pain. And this is misleading. There are common mechanisms that underlie neuropathic pain regardless of the original cause of the injury. Pictured here is the complex relationship among the causes, mechanisms, and symptoms of neuropathic pain. Truly maladaptive in nature, neuropathic pain can occur not only at sites far removed from the in original injured area, but also at degrees of severity that bear little relationship to the extent of injury. Neuropathic pain is difficult to treat for several reasons. The pain linked to different diseases may share a common mechanism, or one mechanism can produce many different symptoms. And one patient's symptoms might be caused by several different mechanisms. This all sounds very complex, but it's something that is immediately clear when you're talking to a patient who has neuropathic pain. For instance, many patients with diabetes describe both constant burning pain in their feet and occasional sharp stabbing pains as well. These two symptoms are very likely to have different underlying mechanisms. In neuropathic pain, the central nervous system demonstrates its plasticity by literally rewiring itself in response to changing inputs to neurons in the dorsal horn of the spinal cord. In central sensitization, neurons in the spinal cord become hyper-responsive. This often leads to hypersensitivity and pain that extends beyond the location of the original injury. After nerve injury, A-fiber terminals sprout into the superficial dorsal horn, and the expression and sensitivity of specific ion channels on these neurons is altered. They become sensitized, both centrally and peripherally. This sensitization is what leads to the manifestations that patients describe. For example, rewiring and increased sensitivity of the large myelinated A-fibers, which normally signal harm, are the mechanisms that underlie allodynia. The likely symptomatic manifestations of these mechanisms are described here. Alterations in the expression and distribution of sodium and potassium channels after nerve injury increase membrane excitability, resulting in spontaneous pain and paresthesias. As we've seen, central and peripheral sensitization alter perceptions of pain and increase sensitivity to temperature and touch. The sprouting of A-fiber terminals is associated with spontaneous pain. Peripheral nerve injury may also reduce inhibitory influence on dorsal horn neurons. I'd like to comment briefly on cancer-related pain, which can have features of both acute and chronic pain, as well as nociceptive and neuropathic pain. The type of pain patients with cancer experience depends on the tumor itself its location and proximity to or invasion of other tissues and organs. 
Pain may arise from the disease itself or from painful diagnostic procedures like biopsy, as well as treatments like chemotherapy or radiation. Cancer differs from chronic non-cancer pain in several major ways, including the time course, the underlying pathophysiology, and its treatment. It's beyond the scope of today's discussion to talk in detail about cancer-related pain. Nonetheless, pain associated with cancer and its treatment can cause direct injury to tissues that leads to acute, localized pain that resolves as tissue heals. Cancer, chemotherapy, and surgery can lead to nervous system injury and persistent neuropathic pain, sharing many of the characteristics and a similar approach to treatment with the examples of neuropathic pain we are discussing today. The treatment of neuropathic pain must extend beyond symptom control and address underlying mechanisms to maximize efficacy. Looking toward the future, a mechanistic approach might prevent the structural reorganization and loss of inhibitory circuits responsible for establishing neuropathic pain. Let's look at neuropathic pain within the clinical concept of two examples of peripheral neuropathic pain, peripheral diabetic neuropathy and postherpetic neuralgia. How do you choose agents based on an understanding of the underlying pathophysiology of these conditions? Diabetic peripheral polyneuropathy, an abnormal nerve function involving multiple nerves, is the most common complication of diabetes, occurring in 50% of those diagnosed with the disease. The prevalence of diabetes in the United States is high, affecting nearly 8% of the population, an increase of 60% since 1990. So we can all expect to see many patients with diabetic peripheral neuropathy in our own practices. Any patient with a history of diabetes is at risk for diabetic peripheral neuropathy. Patients present complaining of a variety of bothersome symptoms, including loss of sensation, pain in their feet, legs, and hands, particularly at night. In diabetes, symptoms of nerve damage vary from patient to patient. Some report tingling pain, others burning or numbness in their fingers and toes. A neurologic evaluation is necessary to determine its severity and to rule out other causes of peripheral neuropathy. The exam may well reveal hyperalgesia and allodynia. The most common form of diabetic peripheral neuropathy is symmetrical polyneuropathy caused by the endarteriolar microvascular occlusion that accompanies diabetes. These vascular changes are similar to those that affect other organs, as seen in diabetic retinopathy and nephropathy. Management of the patient with diabetic peripheral neuropathy must be tailored to individual requirements, taking into consideration comorbidities, treatment side effects, and other factors. A recent guideline by the American Academy of Neurology recommends that pregabalin be used as the first-line agent for treating patients with painful diabetic peripheral neuropathy because this agent has proven effective in reducing pain and it's also been shown to improve quality of life and reduce sleep disturbances. The American Academy of Neurology's guideline reviewed all of the available scientific evidence. Venlafaxine, duloxetine, amitriptyline, gabapentin, valproate, opioids including morphine, tramadol, and oxycodone as well as topical capsaicin were all recommended as probably effective and should be considered when treating patients with diabetic neuropathy. Other treatments, though, were related as having less evidence or even negative evidence, evidence against their use. The agents that are used most commonly, the anticonvulsants like gabapentin and pregabalin, and the antidepressants like nortriptyline and duloxetine, reduce neuronal excitability, directly affecting the underlying mechanisms that cause neuropathic pain. There's little scientific evidence to guide the choice among the different available agents, as few trials that directly compare different agents have been done. Often, the adverse effects associated with these agents are what guide long-term treatment. 
Adverse effects are common, and familiarity with the adverse effects of each agent is an important part of successful treatment. Let's turn to another common form of neuropathic pain, post-herpetic neuralgia. Anyone who's ever had chickenpox, and that's about 95% of the U.S. population, is at risk for post-herpetic neuralgia, a painful complication of herpes zoster. It's also called shingles. Approximately 1 million cases of acute herpes zoster occur each year, and 10 to 15% of those patients will go on to develop chronic pain. The incidence and severity of post-herpetic neuralgia increases dramatically with age. Herpes zoster describes the reactivation of the varicella virus. After the primary varicella infection, called chickenpox, the virus lies quiescent in the dorsal root ganglia, often for many decades, kept in check by the normal immune system. With aging or immunosuppression associated with illness, the virus can multiply, and this typically erupts in the form of a painful rash along the course of a peripheral nerve, most often a single dermatome on the trunk or the face, less commonly in the extremities. When the pain associated with acute herpes zoster outbreak persists for more than two months, we call it post-herpetic neuralgia. Post-herpetic neuralgia is caused by viral-mediated damage to peripheral afferent neurons. The pain of post-herpetic neuralgia can be excruciating, and symptoms include spontaneous and constant aching or burning pain, electric shock-like sensations, allodynia, and hyperalgesia. The pain may persist for months or even years. The mean duration is about three and a half years. As with other chronic painful neuropathies, post-herpetic neuralgia can be refractory to treatment. The pharmacologic agents used to treat post-herpetic neuralgia are listed here. Strong evidence supports the use of tricyclic antidepressants, the anticonvulsants gabapentin and pregabalin, opioids, and topical lidocaine patches. Good evidence supports the use of nortriptyline over amitriptyline because of fewer side effects. Amitriptyline has significant cardiac effects in the elderly compared to nortriptyline and desipramine. Opioids can be effective, particularly during the acute episode of zoster, and there's no one opioid that's more effective than any other. Prompt administration of antiviral agents may decrease not only the severity of zoster, but also the risk of developing post-herpetic neuralgia. As we discussed for diabetic neuropathy, there's little scientific evidence to guide the choice among the different available agents. Again, the adverse effects associated with these agents are often what guide long-term treatment. Diabetic peripheral neuropathy and post-herpetic neuralgia are everyday examples of the potentially devastating consequences of neuropathic pain in, on our patients' lives. An evidence-based approach using agents that address the mechanisms rather than just the symptoms of neuropathic pain will help to optimize patient management. 
We've learned much about the mechanisms that lead to neuropathic pain and how best to use the treatments that are available to us today. In the future, better approaches to preventing the sensitization that leads to chronic maladaptive pain may be our best hope of reducing the frequency and the severity of these devastating conditions. We hope you found this episode informative and have learned a little bit about the mechanisms underlying neuropathic pain, as well as treatment options that may help minimize this type of pain in your patients. In our next episode, Dr. James Rathmill will continue the discussion on mechanistic-based approaches to treating chronic pain by looking at the most common example of chronic pain seen in primary care practice, chronic lower back pain. To proceed to the online CME test, click on the Earn CME credit link on this page. Please also take a moment to complete a few post-assessment questions to help us measure the educational impact of this activity. We hope you will check back to view future episodes of Pain TV. Thank you for watching this program.